It's my pleasure tonight to introduce Mr. Cyril Peckham, who is a fellow of the Royal Photographic Society. Actually, he began in the aircraft business as early as 1928. He spent some time with the General Aircraft Company Limited and with Phillips and Powers Limited, and then another 11 years with Hawker Siddeley Aviation. But most of his working life has been spent as a freelance. He became a licensed pilot after fighting a nine-year medical ban through meningitis. And in a sense, he is the last of the pioneer air photographers. He asked me to apologize tonight for his lack of voice because he just had bronchitis. And I think it's extraordinarily plucky of him to come along tonight and fulfill this engagement. And I'm sure we shall enjoy his lecture. Well, I don't know whether you've thought about this title, Air Photography, at all, but it covers a tremendous subject. In fact, so big that I'm just not going to attempt to deal with any more than one aspect of it tonight. And even that, I think, will have to be proven somewhat severely. To the best of my knowledge, nobody has yet written the history. But it's certain that picture-taking must have taken place long before I came onto the stage. Balloon to balloon, even airship to airship probably even plane to plane. Wherever there was a promise of a picture, you'll find a man with a camera. And those, after all, were really the days of the great pioneers, because not only of flying, but of photography itself. Because that science also was in its infancy, and the people and the exponents of it were very few and far between. Now, even I, when a youngster as far back as 1921, took air-to-ground pictures with a box brownie from an Avro 504. And I even experimented taking pictures at the top of loops, which weren't at all bad, I might mention. So, who can say where it all began? The real picturesque air-to-air -air photography came in with what will always be called the golden age of British aviation. Those wonderful years when air aeroplanes led the world, when flying was a joy and a pleasure, and not a computerized exercise. Give me test pilots for this, but uh, I don't regard modern flying as being an art and a pleasure in the same way. Of course, situations invariably throw up the men to handle them, and this was no exception. And the growing tide of flying machines and the rise of aeronautical journals brought forward three key men who will always figure in my mind as being the true professional pioneers. They were Charles Sims. John Yoxall and Charles Brown. It's interesting to note that even they started in humble ways. They were all photographic journalists, and Sims has told me how he and Yoxall began by taking ground-to-air pictures. They stood in the middle of the aerodrome while test pilots hurled their machines at them. And this, as you can imagine, yielded exciting results even with the best test pilots. But as Sims said, there were others. And, uh, <laughs> After flinging themselves prostrate and to avoid decapitation, they began to realize that it would be a good deal safer to do it from another airplane. Hence, as Sims put it, the air-to-air Bing boys. Charlie Brown was reputed to have been drawn into aviation when he covered an assignment where a balloon had fallen on top of a house. I don't know how true this is, but whatever may have been their humble beginnings, these three did set the standard and pave the way in a remarkably efficient manner. They were the true pioneers of modern air-to-air -air technique. 
Now this was in the middle 1920s. I came in about two years later. Having served an apprenticeship in advertising, I started on my own specialising in aviation. Applied both art and photography to the task of producing good advertisements. There are not many alive today who remember me as an aircraft artist. I was known in those days more for my paintings of airplanes than as a photographer. In fact, I'm going to digress for a moment. It's a little bit of conceitless, perhaps, but I'm just going to show you four of my paintings and advertisements, only to bring back memories of a past era. There's a Bristol Bulldog. I'm afraid this colour slab has been made from a print of the original, but it's come out quite reasonably well. That was portraying a there was an advertisement on the cover of a magazine called Airways and I am not quite sure if that was Jim Mollison or somebody who flew down to South Africa anyway and was just a portrayal of it. There was the plane that won the Schneider Trophy for us in 1928 flying across the solo. That was the same scene just in an advertisement of that. Well, getting back to photography, I think that Sims, Yoxall, Brown and myself were very fortunate in starting our work in this colourful period of British aviation, especially so as the improving quality of photographic materials, their emulsions and general techniques kept pace with the ever-increasing flow of prototype aeroplanes. The years that followed produced rich crops of pictures from all of us. And of course, since the war with Hitler, we've seen a steady increase in the number of air-to-air -air experts young men who have brought new techniques to the game, blended daring and fine photography into results, I think, of very high quality. Today, unfortunately, we have the said sad spectacle of a number of very able young men facing a shrinking mark. Because if the earlier years represented the golden age of aviation, the immediate future would seem to herald its funeral. In this narrowing scene, the function of the air-to-air -air specialist as we used to know him has almost come to an end. There are five qualifications essential to an air photographer. These are a love of aviation, good knowledge of photography, artistic sense, personal airworthiness and fine sense. The last two are the most important because without them the other three are useless. A man can be both keen and capable. If he can't face up to the peculiar strains of flying, he might just as well pack up and go home. The photographer must be able to enjoy being chucked about in the air, especially when he's unsuited for position for this kind of thing. Either standing by the door of the bomber or kneeling facing backwards on the seat of a light plane. In steep turns, which can be quite tolerable when you're sitting in the plane, can be unpleasant when you're standing or kneeling. They have to be experienced to realize the strains they can put on unfamiliar muscles. During such maneuvers, the photographer must continue his job, changing plate holders, checking light values, and hurriedly planning the next moment of pressing the shutter. No matter what he feels, he must ignore the nauseating sensations and pressures that make the task seem impossible. It's a mental as well as a physical exercise and requires self-discipline. It's not been uncommon to come down from air-to-air -air sortie with your legs so lacking in control that it's really very difficult to walk. I've had experience of that several times. The man determined to succeed subordinates all the sensations to the needs of the job, and any failure to do this would rub him the best picture. 
The other important qualification is what I call fine sense. And this means that you know exactly what pictures you want, and you know how to ask the pilot to do the particular things that will produce For this, of course, some knowledge of the pilot's problems is very useful, so as to avoid making stupid requests or impractical requests. Few things profit a skilled test pilot's respect and cooperation more quickly than for him to realize that the man briefing him knows nothing about his job. And believe me, nothing was ever achieved without the pilot's helpful cooperation. He always is the true maker of the pictures, and on him everything depends. Now, it may interest you to see some of the regular platforms from which we've all operated over the years. First of the regularly used planes shown here is the Tiger Moth, in which hundreds of pictures must have been taken over a period of 30 years. This picture with myself perched on the edge of the cockpit, of course, is not characteristic. It was certainly not in every time position. But I've added it in because it has a peculiar interest in being the only way you could get a head-on view of another tiger moth. You can think around the problem as much as you like, and you'll realize that the only aircraft which possessed rear views were military planes. The difference in speed made their use impossible. This next picture shows the actual photograph which I took from that position. You see, there's a very pleasant view of the tiger from directly in front. Actually, a very rare picture. Now, the next aeroplane, which Simshot saw Brown and I used a great deal, was the Hawker Hart. From this very delightful aeroplane, we could shoot either from the rear gunner's seat, or, as in this picture, through a hole in the side from which a three-cornered radio panel had been removed. Both positions were drafty. <laughs> when leaning out at full stretch like this, you got the full blast of the slipstream. But uh, it was a very fine aeroplane, and I've got some more to say about this later on. The next slide is showing a Tempest 5 rolling over on its back. It's the sort of view you got from the first position up in the rear gunner's cockpit, looking rearwards. The next showing a hurricane trainer. It was a typical picture from sitting comfortably inside and firing out through the radio panel. The next was a sort of picture you got leaning out at full stress. By hooking toes around bits of the structure, it was possible to lean a long way out with comparative safety. And I was able to take some quite astonishing head-on views. One of these, Tempest Two was lucky enough to gain first prize in an international competition in New York in 1946. Rather an interesting development took place during what I call the Hart regime, and that was the int introduction of the rolling inwards manoeuvre. Up to this time, air-to-air -air pictures had included only the peel-off as a variant from the usual poses. I felt that if we put the subject aeroplane in a position below and to one side of the photographic aeroplane, pilot then just rolled inwards and under. We should get a much more interesting picture, if only because the top of an aeroplane is always more interesting than the underside. Well, here, with cooperation paid dividends, the idea was put across to test pilot Bill Humble, and together we pioneered a new photographic manoeuvre. This slide shows a typical result from that. Uh, another aeroplane, which because of availability really was frequently used, was the de Havilland Rapide. Here again you can see me sticking out of the window, rather like a snail out of its shell, but it had a little less speed than the heart, this Rapide, but with the rear starboard window removed, one could get out quite easily in that position and get some very decent head-on viewers.
fact, the next picture I'll show you one that was actually taken from that position. It's an interesting shot for two reasons. One, you're looking right down the path of the sun, and it's quite remarkable to have got as clear a picture as that, really, with a tremendous reflection of the sea. And another thing you'll notice, the Bill Humble was crabbing the machine a little, in a little bit to give me a perfect head-on view. And you can see his rudders a little bit offset from centre. Otherwise he would have had to be behind, and that wing probably would have gone just under the fuselage. Working from inside the window was very comfortable by comparison with leaning out like that. Very much in sharp contrast, in fact, and that's just the sort of typical shot one got from there. And another, which was taken right back in 1938 from a rapide. It's a beautiful little picture over Jersey. Aeroplanes like the rapide and heart, of course, soon began to show their limitations as more advanced types of aircraft came into service. With the advent of the jets, we had to cast about for a suitable photographic aeroplane. Fortunately, the RAE, Farnborough, and the Empire Test Pilot School were willing to help us with either a Lancaster or a Varsity, sometimes a Hastings, and so the work was able to go on. The Lancaster, in the doorway of which it seemed working here, was really, I think, a beautiful aeroplane for air-to-air -air work. Had excellent facilities at the open door, and also from the rear turret when the guns had been removed. Its only drawback, actually, was the area which was covered by the tailplane and rudder. And to illustrate this, I'm just going to show you a picture. Now you can see the tailplane and the rudder just coming in. If I had raised him a little, he would have had to disappear behind those. But uh, in spite of this, the length was so good in every other way that it's really a prime support. Actually, there were not many Lancasters in left by the time the Hunter and the Nat had come onto the stage. The last survivors did manage to struggle through the sky, combating always an ever-increasing difference in speed. Newer and faster jets came into production. The next picture just shows one of myself working at the door of a Dakota. I think I only used the Dakota about twice in the whole of my time, so there's nothing much more to be said about it. I'm just showing they're photographing a western wyvern. Well, the last picture on our list is the two-seat meteor. As a photographic airplane, the meteor had many shortcomings, but as it was the only two-seater that could possibly hold its own maneuver on relative level terms of the high-performance fighter, we just had to use it for formation aerobatics. The field of view was very restricted. In contrast to the wonderful freedom one had at the open door of a lamp, the photographer found himself penned inside an narrow perspex cage. Conditions in the cockpit were not helpful because there was absolutely nowhere to put your camera case, and the few slides you could carry had to be swung over the shoulder and just hung on your side. This on top of a flying suit, a parachute harness and a May West, rather added to the difficulties of the job. When you had the camera up to the ready, you had hardly any room to move your head behind it. You were hitting the perspex at the rear. The large control column weaved about within inches of the chest so that you could never relax the camera in front and had to hold it to one side all the time. However, not only did pictures have to be taken through perspex, more often than not, perspex was dirty and scratched. Light coming from all directions made reflections a nightmare. When I came up against my first assignment of using a meter, I went down to the aerodrome some days before. Spent a good half an hour sitting in the cockpit going through the whole of an aerobatic flight in my mind. 
trying out different positions and ways of holding the camera. I tried easing off the shoulder strap, see whether I could twist my body around so the camera could point a little rearward. Well, one major decision did emerge from this valuable rehearsal, and that was that reflections could be eliminated if I could black out all the windows except the one through which I was firing. So on the day of the sortie, I arrived early and spent a useful hour taping black paper over all the windows, just leaving the one that I cleaned and polished very thoroughly. Fortunately, a blind let down between the pilot and myself, so that I was virtually flying in an enclosed box with only the one window left clear. But this bit of trouble was well worthwhile, and we paid a really lovely set of nibbled duke-pooping a hunter, one of which I'll show you here. Or so much for some of the platforms. Now we come to, I think, one of the most important items in air-to-air photography, and that is the briefing of the pilots of the two aeroplanes. Long before the day of the sortie, the photographer should have found out everything about the new prototype he was going to photograph. Of course, even in the golden days, prototypes took many months to build, and a keen man had plenty of time to make himself aware of all the relevant facts that leaked out. Some sort of ground picture was always issued in the early days, so that the photographer would know what it looked like. And the really keen man could enjoy himself sketching little pictures of viewers that most suited the design, could draw up a hypothetical flight plan long before D-Day arrived. This, of course, would only be a foundation, and might be subject to modification after a chat with the chief test pilot, capable individual's opinions of the flying characteristics and advantages of the plane could be preferably sought in a quiet chat round the plane before the briefing took place, and this dot the I's and cross the T's of anything that the photographer might have missed. The new plane had certain gadgets for an advance on any hitherto designed. It could be obviously a good idea to high-spot them. Things like flaps, slots, air brakes, just to quote you, if possible, be introduced into the situation for which they were designed. For the actual fight, we always found it helpful if both pilots were given a small written slip. Something like this picture. This would be explained in detail to both of the briefing, the demonstration of the hand signals would be employed between each item. Various other points would be discussed, including the intercom request I'm likely to make to my own pilot about the direction and height he was required to fly. It was very much the responsibility of the photographer to plan the flight path of the whole sort, so that every section enjoyed the idea of lighting without having to stray too far away from base to achieve it. You'll notice that I've said nothing about radio contact with the other plane. Well, quite honestly, I always found that it failed if I tried it. I only tried it on two occasions, and each time something went wrong. And if you've got no alternative set of signals, you're absolutely lost, so I found it much more preferable to stick to purely hand signals all the time. It's worked satisfactorily for pretty well the whole of my flying life. But when all the points have been clarified, we would move out onto the tarmac and the exercise commence. I think at this stage it'll be more useful if I take you step by step through a typical fight. The only break from reality we'll have is that I'll use the opportunity to introduce pictures many different types taken on many different flights just to give variety but I'll introduce each picture into the appropriate section of the flight so that it preserves continuity. Those who've had no experience in the business of taking a set of air-to-air pictures, this arrangement will probably be informative anyway. And for the others, it'll at least provide an opportunity for showing a number of pictures that will bring back nostalgic memories. The first task was to rendezvous over the aerodrome at a predetermined height and head off together in a suitable direction.
This would be influenced by the position of the sun at the time of day when the sortie took place. And assuming this exercise had been based on Farnborough somewhere around 1.30pm, our most likely direction would have been to head off northwesterly, which would eventually have taken us somewhere over North London, keeping the sun on our starboard side. In a Lancaster, this would mean it would be shining right in the doorway, so that the first leg of the flight would be very little done. But this time would be valuably used up while the pilot of the prototype was edging his plane into close formation. It might take a surprisingly long time to manage the pilot was not used to it, better to face wasted time during the initial stages than later when the pilot had adjusted and the light was favourable. The problem of easing a fast jet into tight formation of a length is often considerable not only with the controlled sluggish at our slow flying speed of about 200 knots, but the jet engines just don't respond to throttle treatment like a propeller-driven plane. As you edge the throttle forward, there's a slight period of inertia before the plane picks up. When you throttle it back, it tends to run on. So all these things tend to hinder a pilot finding his photographic leg, so to say wings. Turning back on the reciprocal would bring the sun round behind us and we started quite right away, in which the photographer would wave the plane up or down or forward or backward or nearer or further, just to work whatever position he required. By the time that the planes had arrived back over Farnborough, there should be a number of good straight and level portraits in the bag. Uh, these just show typical shots of the type one would get. There you've got the last hurricane that was made with that great test pilot, Mr. Bullman, controls. There's a Tempest 5 with Bill Humble, Tempest 2 also with Bill Humble. That's the Hawker P1050, the first prototype jet they made with Wimpy Whale at the controls. The Sapphire engine lost a meteor. Standard Meteor 4, a real close-up portrait. That's the whole of the negative there, there's nothing missing. There's an old tipsy. This has a peculiar interest for me, this picture, because the gentleman sitting on the right-hand side reveal is actually in the audience tonight, and that picture was taken 30 years ago. Exactly 30 years ago now. I don't think Sidney Veal will ever forget that. Well, see, the pilot was about a 22-stone gentleman, and about four yards around the waist. Poor old Sydney was squashed inside. He's <laughs> always been thin ever since, now I know why. But now, being roughly back over base, the photographer would give the signal by wagging a piece of white card or whatever other system we use. The pilot knew he could pass on to item number two. Now, on this particular flight plan, this involved little change, except that the pilot of the photographic plane was captured up, contacted on the intercom, in other words, my pilot and I asked him to start a gradual turn to port. The object of this second section, all of which was to be carried out while we were doing a gigantic circle, was to keep us over our base. This is a common sense manoeuvre because fuel in the jets is limited to an average of 30 to 40 minutes flying time. The more we could get done without wandering too far away, the easier and less anxious it was for the pilot of the prototype. The purpose of the left-hand circle also, to give us some more side and three quarter view front positions, also close ups under constantly changing aspects of light. All the way around the circle, the sun is altering its position. You've got these are very similar shots, of course, to the last. They're still on the straight and level, we're only turning a very wide circle, probably with a diameter of about 10 miles. But you can notice here that the light aspect is changing on these various pictures. 
There, she's gone right round the other side, leaving the aeroplane almost a silhouette, but you can get very beautiful effects on the clouds when the sun is in that direction. There's another bright post-up of the early warning gannet. I found it was only courteous to let the pilots have a good close-up of themselves now and again. After all they did all the hard work, I can assure you that they are the main factor in getting good air photographs. Without the pilot's help, you get nothing, however skillful you were. Everything depends on them. Oh, well, the third item is taking peel off. This was best carried out by the sun, more or less, behind the photographer. With a word on the intercom, then we turn in a southwesterly direction, leaving the sun on our left-hand side, which will bring it behind the photographer. For this manoeuvre, I used to wave the prototype to a place just where I wanted him to be, and then give him a quick thumbs up, by which he knew that as soon as I had the camera up to the ready, he would peel off in a vertical bank. And these next few show just typical shots from this manoeuvre. The Avro first experimental delta plane, the P1052, I think that was. You can correct me, Bill, there. I think I believe that was the P1052 javelin. There, the wing of my own plane, I was flying in a fairy fulmar at the time there. Almost spot the picture, but one really had no choice if you wanted just that view. If I'd left the shot just a moment or two later, you would have fallen away too far, because the, the plane falls away very fast from that position. Well, we'd repeat that three or four times. You can see we'd get probably four shots in the bag, and then again I would give a signal, and we'd pass on to the fourth item. That's just taking the other aeroplane rolling in, and it's the most difficult of all for the pilot of the machine being photographed. Rolling in towards my aeroplane, of course, must have elements of danger in it, and it needs skill on the pilot's part. The method was similar to the last. I would direct him to a position from which I wanted him to commence the roll, then, as in the peel-off, give him a thumbs up. Incidentally, although I always chose this position with care, it was very clearly understood between us that if the pilot was not satisfied from a safety point of view, he must, of course, override my judgment. As soon as I had the camera at the ready, the pilot rolled his aeroplane in, and as the machine arrived at a vertical bank, it was fall away quickly under my aircraft and was lost to sight. So at the exact moment of pressing the shutter was really very critical. It was easy to be too hasty, just as easy to be too late. Here again is some typical shot. I think you'll agree that they, these always look as though the plane must come right into me and hit, but actually he's quite a way below. I'm looking down at quite a sharp angle there, and the top wing would pass underneath the fuselage at generally a fairly safe distance. So NF-11, that's a cluster meteor, really, with, along with the radar in the nose. Production hunter, the javelin, looking a sinister creature of the night, sliding across a sunlit landscape. There's the latest of the Hawk, the 11-27. But when all the work had been completed at the side door, came the ordeal of crawling down an arrow tunnel into the rear turret, clutching a camera and pushing a large case in front, this had its amusements because the parachute and harness invariably got caught up on every obstruction on the route. The designers of bombers seemed to put angle brackets and things sticking out all the way along these places so that you could get caught up in every one of them. And it was generally something like four to five minutes before I got comfortably settled in the turret and everything was ready to begin. During this time, both machines had at my request headed back to Farnborough so that we reclaimed as much distance as possible before turning into sun again. Just taken from the rear turret of a bomber, all head-on views. 
where the subject area plane either slightly below or above, or weaving from side to side, went directly behind and slightly below. The prototype would come directly on the slipstream of the four Merlin engines, which added to the problem of control that did produce impressive pictures, as some of these slides will show. It's the javelin. That was taken actually from the rear turret of a refueling Lancaster. The other plane is just coming up to push his probe in the drove there. Unfamiliar position from the hunter. Now this one I'm sure Bill Bedrick will never forget because the closest I've ever had a plane or mate against the rear turret. I actually focused onto the windscreen 25 feet. I just turned my head round. <laughs> Bill had a German pilot with him at the time, if I remember. I don't know what he thought about it. I never asked you afterwards, Bill. But uh, I think it's a great feat to have held it in that position in all the slipstream of the Merlin 4 Merlin engines so close. Now, photographing from the rear turret was not so comfortable as working by the open door. So unless you had had a wrestling match with the side door before you left there, it really was difficult. I only ever succeeded in shutting it once on my own. Powerful draft and bit down the tunnel and out of the rear turret. Not only bitterly cold on a chilly day, but I've known at least one nasty moment because of this. Because a suction was created out of that bat. And if it hadn't been for Leslie Hammond, who saved my life at that time, I shouldn't have been here to talk to you tonight. The next picture is the one that caused all the trouble. It's a view looking down from the rear turret onto a hunter, which Neville Duke had rolled over onto its back. It was a prearranged manoeuvre, but in my zeal to get this unusual picture as it passed underneath, I leaned right out at full stretch. Camera, both hands clutching it and nothing to hold on, I felt myself being drawn out. Fortunately, Leslie was seated on the floor just behind. Seeing my feet commencing a vertical takeoff, fact, he grabbed them tightly and I was able to wriggle back again. You probably don't know this, but uh, during the terrible 1940 air raids on London, Leslie was awarded to George Cross for extreme conspicuous bravery as a firefighter. I should like to add a bar to this decoration. I owe him a big debt. <laughs> Now, while it's possible to pose the subject aeroplane, make it look aerobatic, rather like the rolling in pictures, or even these if you like, they're not, of course, truly aerobatic. Genuine aerobatic pictures can only be obtained by formating with a subject aeroplane throughout the whole of the loop or roll. This, of course, requires the photographer to put himself in a similar type, with similar characteristics, to seek the plane of the closest match performance, which we always chose the meteor the only thing available, actually. The two pilots will have to practice until they can hold their machines together throughout the manoeuvre, in spite of difference in speed and reaction. Actually, vertical banks, when one machine is poised directly over the other, can be just as impressive as loops. Here the photographer in the uppermost machine looks down onto the other, straight down at the ground with the subject aeroplane immediately in the foreground, and I think you'll agree it makes a very striking picture. When the two pilots have managed to achieve a perfect loop together, the task becomes fairly simple for the photographer. It's only a matter of ignoring the physical strains of the manoeuvre and of shooters of choosing the direction in which the airplane start the loop. Sunwise, that is to say. Using a camera with a single metal slide, I never succeeded in taking more than two pictures during the course of one loop, one on the way up, one on the way down. And this was pretty hard going, I assure you, under the pressures involved. Of course, if a photographer really wants to go to town in aerobatics, 
you can team up with a special RAF squadrons like Red Arrow, their aerobatic team. Some magnificent shots have been taken during these displays by Mike Chase, which in my opinion I think are worthy of the highest honours. But before passing on to the next item, I'm just going to break off a second to show you two pictures of gliders which were taken while enjoying a break with the pilots of the Empire Test Pilot School. I'm only showing them because there are no other gliders in here. And they're interesting examples of how clouds can make a picture out of what we just want in photograph. Very real sweat sky. Scotland Yard have not been informed. There's some remarks on their problem line. Now, uh, the first 27 years of my life, life in aviation, led me to think that I'd experienced most of the commonplace thing. I'd done a little gliding, flown hundreds of hours in a fantastic variety of powered aeroplanes, ranging from the Avro 504 to the Hunter Trainer. I'd flown off and on the decks of carriers, taken trips in helicopters. Yet life still had one surprise up its sleeve for me. This I found 12 years ago when I was pitchforked suddenly into the strangest of all branches of aviation, the world of the parachute. My most valued client, with whom I have an extremely close connection, is the Chico Parachute Company. I'm taking over their photographic work very quickly shook me out of any complacency that may ever have crept into my system. In the first place it was rapidly brought home to me that the Air-to-air -air photography was absolute chicken feed compared with the problems of taking parachutes. And secondly, I found it disconcerting to find myself mixing with a number of people whose attitude to flying differed so fundamentally from mine. Both things rapidly cut me down to size, I assure you. I'm really a very cautious sort of chap, and I had worn a parachute been flying for something like 30 years, and vaguely feared that one day I might have to use it. But here I found myself hobnobbing with a bunch of people whose sole idea of enjoyment seemed to be to chuck themselves over the side of an aeroplane. Well, for twelve years now I've lived in this madhouse, actually learned to enjoy and respect it. I think really it's done a lot to ward off sin out of the cave, because you just can't grow old in the parachute world. Now, an extremely interesting aspect of air photography is found working with the Navy on an aircraft carrier. Apart from the natural interest in living and working on one of the Majesty's ships, which is an experience after all not available to everybody. It does pose many photographic problems that a keen man who loves a challenge can enjoy overcoming. The most formidable of these were undoubtedly those met when attending flying trials of a new aeroplane on a carrier. The whole atmosphere of trials was in sharp contrast to normal peacetime service conditions. The photographer could be taxed to the limits of his powers, getting all the pictures he wanted. Of course, here nothing was laid on for him, except traditional courtesy, always get that from the Navy, a cabin and good food. Personnel on board were always reinforced by a number of technicians from Farnborough, the firm whose plane was on test. They had an important job to get done, generally within a time limit. Excepting for their own technical pictures, they were just not interested in photography, so the opportunities you desired had to be thought out in advance and snatched as they happened. A more imaginative operator could anticipate from some simple takeoffs and landings. Better chance he would have of taking home some interesting pictures. Any newcomer, after taking a look around the carrier, would very quickly realise the impossibility of getting pictures without taking chances. All the best position to chance, see if things go wrong. 
not unnaturally the first thing you come up against is the officer in charge of the deck operations whose job it is to prevent accidents. He says you may not stand here, you mustn't stand there, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. All the positions where the only decent pictures can be obtained. All this, of course, is very frustrating and generally involves spending the evening in the boardroom trying to soften that gentleman down over relays of drinks. <laughs> if you were lucky and the man persuasive, and you were able to convince him that you knew your business, you stood a good chance of getting down to work the next day with greatly improved prospects. Such was all part of the game. There was, of course, only risk if the aeroplane just landed and swung in your direction. So long as you took careful note of where to fling yourself, even if it was only into the sea, you stood a reasonable chance of getting away with your skin. Pictures taken on a carrier are extraordinarily misleading. You look at a fine print, you'll see some in a moment. The scene shows an aeroplane taking off or landing onto a deck where everything is bathed in sweet sunshine. Sea sparkling in a few soft cirrus clouds in the sky. Everything looks so delightfully tranquil. So it is, of course, from the point of view of light and shade, but my goodness, what a thundering lie it is from the point of view of wind and noise. In fact, the carrier on these trials <coughs> is normally batting along at about 25 knots into a wind of about 20 knots. Where jets are concerned, they prefer a faster wind speed than this. So as a result, the photographer worked in a howling gale of about 55 miles an hour or more, which made it almost impossible to work forward. The fantastic roar of the engines reflecting off the metal surfaces, the shattering business, and the impact of the aircraft as it dumps onto the deck and landing as a brutal affair, altogether the beautiful sunshiny tranquility of the prints as you see them, is an absolute mockery of the conditions under which the pictures are taken. Mostly, you stand in this howling gale for hour after an hour, <coughs> hour after hour, and in anything but the hottest weather you get pretty chilled. In order to move from point to point, you have to climb down nearly vertical ladders, race along a complicated set of corridors and through bulkheads, hoping that you're going to come up at the right place. Which probably isn't, you find you have to go all down again and thread through somewhere else to come up. Battered by wind and shattered by noise, and with heavy gear to lump up and down these things, you can be a pretty tired fellow at the end of a short day. Very glad to get inside and relax. And the aerial side of this work is not much less exacting, especially in the days before helicopters were available. After flying off the deck, you had to circle around on the starboard side, kindly instruct the young pilot, not experienced at all in photographic requirements, how to get into position just as the plane is either taking off or landing. In this particular instance, we were doing an absolute vertical turn right over the top there. I was looking straight down at in my window into that plane. It was an absolute chance that we just got it, this sheer luck. And just as a shadow was falling on the deck of the plane, too, which gives it a suggestion of height, it was far more difficult still, of course, to get just opposite the bows of the carrier at the right height as the machine was fired off the catapult. That was the most difficult of all. But sometimes the subject aeroplane performed only five or six circuits during the course of the day. And if you didn't get your pictures within those limits, you might have had a wasted journey because the trial might be postponed for several weeks as a machine in the US. Work was physically and mentally exhausting, but extremely interesting and enjoyable. The following sequence of a of a seahawk was actually taken within the space of six circuits and landings. 
during one day, conditions exactly as I've described, they do illustrate what can be expected from minimal opportunities when everything goes right. He is in position with the stirrup dust ready to be fitted. Just another view showing on the carrier. There the stirrup is fitted, which is ready to be pushed onto the catapult. Those of you who don't know what the stirrup is, it is this contraption here, which actually is hooked onto the catapult and pulls the plane off. There she is, just starting down the catapult. There she is, just going off. The next picture is taken with the aeroplane in exactly that position, but from down in the anchor chain room, just below, gives rather an interesting view of the stirrup being released and falling in. The stirrup, of course, is expendable and just disappears into the sea. I'm told they cost about £11 each, so it's an expensive racket. There she's airborne. Coming round the land, batten foreground. There you can see her just at the back end, roughly a similar position. Unfortunately, when the carriers going so fast as they have to for these jets, the furnaces make rather a lot of smoke, the smokestacks piling out smoke and just spoiling the view. One has to be on the starboard side because as the other machine does a left hand circuit, we've got to keep out of its way all the time. There's the batman just cut his bats. The moment the machine comes down with a thump onto the deck. And that's just the same position. The batman just cut his flags and the plane's just coming in. But there you get a wonderful impression of the terrific speed the carrier's batting along there. And I think it must be quite a frightening ordeal to come in, coming into land at that speed to see all that churning froth just below. There with the hook just about to engage on the trip wires. There she's hooked, number six. She's wheeled forward, and uh, the heaven and sea venom brought up, and just being pushed back to take off position. Seahawk pushed onto the lift, and taken down to the hangar. Last picture, she's down at the bottom, just being pushed away into the hangar. Well, that's the sort of collection you can get, say, within six circuits and landing. So much for the Navy. I confess, being a great sentimentalist. One of the slight delights I've enjoyed in the autumn of my career is to have been able to take air to air photographs of some of the vintage aeroplanes among which I spent my younger days. During the 1914-18 war, I was privileged to spend a good deal of time inside Gordon Aerodrome near Croydon, an RAF training establishment, and in addition to being well stocked with Avro 504s, it had stocked camels, like DH-4s or DH-6, near the end of the war, one or two SC-5s. Goodly collection for any schoolboy to enjoy, and in this age of jets and missiles, I think very nostalgically of those wonderful days, among the rotary engines and the smell of castor oil. I loved every minute of them then, and I love the memory of them now. You can imagine then with what delight I greeted the revival of many of these old types. The immense pressure it's given me to be able to photograph some of them. The SE5A shown here was built by the apprentices at Park, and I just don't hope to convey to you the pleasure that it gave me as I sat at the oak door of my photographic den and looked across at the dear old SE, who made it so closely. Not only took about 50 years, but it was the fulfillment of a long cherished ambition. I actually have got a very full set of air to air pictures of this airplane. But we can only afford to look at a few of them here. 
case of leaning full stretch out of the door of the Devon. If you're rather a good death side view, if one cared to use the top gun. Good portrait of Group Captain Hannafin, who's playing it. Another nice close-up, giving a clear view of the top gun position. If I recollect it during that war, it was the top gun position that really gave that plane its great value. It took the Huns by surprise when it came up behind them and well below them and shoot straight up into their dummy. Now this is historically an interesting picture because there the SE is shown flying over the lightnings, I believe I've got this right, the lightnings of number 74 squadron and the hunters of number 91 squadron. Both of those were equipped with SE-5s during the first war in 1918. So there you have the tie-up with the old squadrons and their old aeroplane and the new. And the second old-timer I was privileged to take was the Brisker Bulldog. It was a very sad finish to this sortie when the machine crashed on landing and was a complete write-off. Oh, shame, it was the most beautiful aeroplane. It really looked magnificent that morning. Well, the last on our list is the Walker Hart. After two years in squadron service, this aeroplane went back to Hawkers. And there's been news of their hack pony for 38 years. Now at last she's been classed as a veteran and put out to graze. During her eventful life, she was frequently used as a photographic aeroplane by Sim, Jacques, or Brown and myself. Now the wheels turned to full circle. From being our photographic steed, she's become the subject aeroplane. It's been my turn to photograph her. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that ends my talk for tonight. I'd be glad to answer any questions if anybody cares to ask any. I hope you'll forgive the particular pattern I've chosen for this. I've not said a lot about the historical side of aircraft. Quite frankly, I don't know a lot anyway. Nobody's ever written the story, and I've got nothing to go on except among my own contemporaries. But I've tried to make the talk interesting in taking you through the technique of it, and I hope to a little extent I've succeeded anyway. Thank you very much for your time. Well, sir, you will you will already know from your audience how much they have appreciated it. You've heard them from time to time comment, perhaps sometimes comment rather loud, loudly. But you know, you have shown us such a remarkable lot of photographs, and you have emphasised perhaps a little the need to get the other pilot to cooperate. And I can appreciate that, first of all, as a photographer, but on the ground how necessary it is to get your subjects to do what you want them to do, and you did it. And then having been on carriers quite a lot, I appreciated your difficulty also in being told you can't go there and you can't go here and so on. And yet, you've got some wonderful photographs. I congratulate you heartily, and I invite a few questions from the floor, and remembering that our lecturer has managed, in spite of his difficulties to guard the throat, get it over. Don't ask him too many questions, but do ask him one or two because he really loves his subject. I must confess that I did build a camera for my own design. I've been very fed up with other cameras, but let me make quite clear that there's nothing wrong with them. It just didn't suit my particular funniosities. They're perfectly good cameras and they took perfectly good photographs, but I wanted one that 
when you looked away from the brilliant cloud, for example, if you looked down on your lens to a little tiny marks where you had to stop down the lens, you couldn't see a thing for about a couple of minutes sometimes. What's above the clouds with the sun shining brilliantly on them, and you turn away and look at something dark underneath, you just couldn't see it. So I made mine with very clear, big, wide marks. Everything was planned for simplicity. What I really did was to cut out the complications of thought cameras. Well, that thing has done me service for 17 or 18 years, more than that now, and it's still going strong. I'm glad to say it was a prototype built by one fellow in the experimental shop at home. By permission of the firm, it was a handmade job. All I did was to make drawing. But I always used a plate camera and still do fair-to-air shots, 9 to 12 centimetre, which is nearly a 5-4 size. I haven't talked much about the photographic side tonight because obviously I regard it as not photographic people here. If I talk to a photographic society, of course, it, the bias is on the photographic side and less on the aviation. Anything else you'd like to know about that? I might notice that I lost average shutter speed to the views. I don't know. I can't speak for other people, but I'm an awful fuss. I like things to be just right. And I found, particularly in the days of Hart, Tempest, Hurricane, things like that, where reduction gears come in and the airscrew tip speeds reduced. If you took anything faster than a hundredth of a second, you had stopped early. And I think they spoiled the picture. Some of them have got them. Uh, you saw tonight they were stopped. It was unavoidable for some reason or another. But I experimented an awful lot when we had the heart trying to overcome this problem. And uh, even leaning at full stretch out of the heart, blasted the slipstream. I found that I could take a hundredth of a second on a wide open slit and get a very good, say, three out of five, absolutely still. I don't know how it's done, but the camera was going like this, everything was going like that, but it just did it. I suppose just in the fraction of a moment one had it still at that point. But then it, you know, the airstream was just a blur, and it really looked as though it was going some. The picture that won the first prize in New York was a perfect example of that, and I only wish I'd had one to show you here, but one of the conditions they laid down, and that is if you won a prize, you forfeited the negative, had to send it out to them. I never had time to make a lantern slide before it went, although I did get some... Sorry, we're turning on something here. Um, the average speed, otherwise, was only about a 250th. I seldom use much more. I'd rather be able to stop the lens down a little more, have a slightly slower speed, but of course in fast manoeuvres, or even the peel-offs, you didn't want to take them at less than the 250th anyway, and if they were jets, you could afford to take them at a 500th and be sure of stopping it absolutely still. Actually, photographing jets was a good deal easier than the earlier airscrew jobs, because you could take at faster speeds, much easier. That preparation of he actually remembers you drawing pictures and painting pictures and having a specially lovely one on the front cover of the aeroplane. Lincoln, Blackburn Lincoln, I remember very well. Um, I also remember, I thought, discussing that camera with you, and I thought that I remembered you saying that when you originally started, press cameras had bellows, and I thought one of the things you had to do in your camera was to arrange a rigid cover between the lens and the 
plate carrier and the uh, vibration. This is the thing which I always remember as being typical of your, your own camera. And uh, perhaps um, I may be allowed to recall an occasion you. Well, first of all, I'd like to confirm what you said about Charles Brown and, and uh, Charles Sims. I've always understood that Charles Brown started his career actually as a small boy. A balloon came down on a row of houses somewhere around the Crystal Palace, and young Charles Brown went down there and um, took a picture and got it into an evening paper. I always understood that's what started him on the downward path. <laughs> and uh, perhaps uh, you referred to the difficulties which you encountered. I remember on one occasion going on a photographic sortie with Charles Sims, who, by the way, started his career in the RAF before he started submitting himself to the dangers of being thrown out by test pilots. Um, we went flying in a Hayford to get some pictures. Remember the Hayford was very far from the ground. Of a handy page torpedo, monoplane torpedo carrier, as far as I remember. And um, we had a very successful sortie, got all the pictures, but coming in to land, it wasn't all that easy. The non pilot, I hope the pilots here will forgive me for saying so, but this aeroplane was dropped from quite a considerable size. Poor child saw all his beautiful face in their carrier, leaping up in the air and bouncing out the top. Did any survive? Oh, thank you. What are your preferences in terms of characteristics? Well, because when I kicked out into this game, Charles Sims, Yopsall and Brown were already, as I mentioned, well established then, and each one of them actually was attached to a, a newspaper, uh, an aeronautical journal. Sims to be airplane. Young sort of flight, Charles Brown is chief photographer to aeronautics. The only hope I had of competing against them, I thought, was not to be just a photographic journalist, but to get quality in the picture. So I went to town on the photographic side a lot and used to experiment with fine grain developers until I got what I call a beautiful quality result. I mean, I'm proud to show a print that really looks a quality print, and I don't see why one shouldn't take a picture of an airplane and get that quality in it. I found that I could use the ordinary fast pan plate. Like, uh, I started in the early days with HP2s, I think they were then, then up to Kodak P1200s. And if you use a good fine grain technique on them, you can get a very pleasant result anyway. And you've got just that little bit extra speed to forfeit it if you want to and stop down a little more if you require. Of course, the whole of this photographic business is an indivisible technique where you expose for a certain plate, you develop for that certain plate for a certain type of plate. Well, I mean, the whole thing really, if you value quality in your pictures, then right from start to finish. I never did. No, that I always did, but I must admit I've gone over to a little roll film camera recently. They're now that much better. You can buy decent roll film cameras. I've got a Japanese job at the moment, giving very satisfactory results on ordinary things, but I must admit I wouldn't take an air to air set for that. No, I, I use a meter. I didn't for ooh, 10, 15 years I didn't use a meter and I don't think any of the other boys did either. 
I never did in the old days, but now, yes, I use a reader and get a reading of both. I think it's just as well if you've got something to help you. It's just like driving a car if you didn't use your synchronous. You'd be an awful ass these days, wouldn't you? And it'd be just the same. Yes, and wind. If you poke it a little bit too near the edge, the wind will get your needle wobbling. But if you get back a little bit on the whole, I find it gives you a basis, and then you can use your own judgment as well. And I never trust to meet a holy, I think, in any case. Built on a graveyard of failures, I guess. Oh, yes. Yes. Goodness, yes. I exercise. Yes, indeed. One, I should never forget. He was using a speed graphic camera at the time. Those menaces to civilization had a front plane shutter and a between lens shutter. I decided I'd take all the pictures on the focal plane. Went up on an air-to-air sortie. First thing that happened, the wind blew the front shutter shut. And, you know, the power of the wind as I poked it out in the middle. I didn't realize it, so I took a whole set with nothing. See? <laughs> Which is, takes a bit of explaining away with the expense of two airplanes going up into the sky. That's only one. I won't dare to mention any of the others. That brings back a lot of memories, really, of uh, a number of farmers when we arrived. We used to arrive with our newly painted airplanes, all ready to display them and formate on the instincts or whatever other airplane was available. What always used to shatter me was the, this aperture. You arrive adjacent to the airplane, and there seemed to be about 20 photographers, each fighting to get their cameras in position. <laughs> some were going like this, some were going like this, too, some were going like this. You never really quite knew which advice to follow. Because the coming cats like so would always make sure they had a quiet word with the pilot beforehand, so that at least there was one or two people in that gaggle whose instructions you were able to follow. <laughs> and this was very helpful. And it was the other trick they used to play was the fact that the photographic airplane was always too slow for the high performance fighters. And the photographic airplane would be going flat out with everything wide open and a nose down attitude. We would be flying along in a very marked nose up attitude, trying to control the airplane. And the, at this stage, the request would always be, will you please do a roll? Well, <laughs> <laughs> one test pilot, who shall be nameless, said, that's all right, I'll stay still, you do the roll. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing, so when we used to do the individual photography, it was always on a very controlled basis, and uh, you had enough to say the pilot was the main factor, well, of course, that's absolute nonsense, he just drove the airplane. They were very modest about all this, but we've seen some tremendous pictures that you've produced over the years, and the sample we saw here this, here this evening was absolutely magnificent. I think it's very impressive also to see that you're equally able to put over a most interesting talk. I think we've enjoyed this tonight tremendously. It's so unusual to have such a digestible lecture given in this hall. There's <laughs> 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 full of double differentials and things like this that none of us really can understand. Most of us pretend we can. And I, I remember on one occasion uh, flying with you and you came down looking absolutely um, unhappy as could be in sex, the most disastrous day that I've ever had in my life. Couldn't have been worse. 
And yet, on that occasion, I think you produced two of the most beautiful pictures that we've ever seen. And your standards have always been very high, and I think that we owe you a tremendous tribute for what you've done in the work in aerial photography. And on behalf of aviation and the test pilots, I'd like to thank you very much indeed for the big contribution you made.